It's the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. The podcast that takes you from Seattle to Tokyo and all points throughout history. It's Jim Valley here in the Seattle area. And we head across the Pacific Rim, the Pacific Ocean, to Japan's leading historian, author, and journalist, Fumi Saito. Fumi, how are you? Hello from Tokyo. What's going on? You were at a, uh, a special event, a private event, uh, memorializing Antonio Inoki on Friday. Yeah, his life and time of Antonio Inoki. A small gathering, but all mature, older people. And uh, yeah, it was a good meeting, good like a seminar-like gathering. And this gentleman, uh, Keiichi uh, Ke- Funabashi, that who used to be retired. Okay, he's a retired uh, TV Asahi chief announcer who was doing Olympics and all the sports casting all through 60s and 70s. And he was the original play-by-play announcer for New Japan's uh, the t- TV show all through the 70s. And he was also a famous play-by-play man for Inoki Muhammad Ali fight. And then Inoki and, and Funabashi were real good friends. And he put together this uh, that seminar event, and he invited me over as a guest speaker yesterday. What did you talk about? Oh, I basically talk about what I wrote in my book, and uh, yeah, the things we can remember uh, Inoki by. And remembering Inoki is like remember your own life too, because he really parallels because. Most most of these people, you know, followed Inoki's career for like 30, 40, 50 years, and so so going back and remember what Inoki has done in you know like in seventies or sixties, seventies and eighties, is like remembering what you were you know doing at the time. And it really brings back a lot of memories and just good warm, you know, gathering. Has anything come out? Any other memories, stories? In the way Inoki's been memorialized as, as time has gone on. Uh, it hasn't stopped and it has it's been as if Inoki's is never gone. And uh, we realize that Inoki's a type of superstar and Inoki's a type of a person that uh, he's here, but he's like already in heaven, right? But the uh, he's still here with us kind of thing. Yeah. Because people, you know, nonstop been talking about Inoki. And we talk about Inoki more now than when he was here, as if. Who else spoke at the event? Uh, Another journalist. And also uh, Esehara, that uh, big photographer who, who photographed Inoki for over 50 years. Yeah. So all people who sort of covered Inoki's career, his life. And what Inoki was to us. Yeah. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I yeah, think... So I, I, was, I was honored to be invited and, you know, just... Um, look, I'm, I'm 60 years old, but in that environment, I felt like a little kid. <laughs> Nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a good time, and we just sat and talked about Inoki and wrestling all day, all night. Yeah, we, we you know moved from the, the seminar place into you know the, the restaurant. We, you know, we, we made reservation and we sat again and talked about Inoki again all night. Very nice. Yeah. 
Sometimes you want to be like a fly on the wall. Sometimes when I've hung out with you, yeah. whether it's talking with Dave or talking with other wrestling luminaries, other journalists, your friends, it's always very interesting to hear yeah. a lot of the conversations. And I've been very privileged to just sit and listen to many conversations like that with you. So I can. And also, wrestling fans basically have good memories on things, don't you think? Memories? Yeah. yeah, I mean, wrestling fans have long memories. But on, yeah. the, but on the other hand, wrestling fans forgive, too. Yeah, very forgiving, yeah. You know, they, they've forgiven Inoki for whatever. Um, oh, yeah, a lot of things, you know, that not-so-good thing were there, you know, came out, too, but... Uh, after all, how you know? Just have to remember Inoki as some uh, like how influential uh, he he was on many things. You know, wrestling fans have forgiven WWE for Vince McMahon's transgressions. They haven't held it against the company. If anything, they've come back because of Vince McMahon retiring. So. Wrestling and fans. you all become fond memories, right? Exactly. Now, wrestling yeah, fans yeah, are very yeah. forgiving. What was interesting was that, like, like 1974, you know, historical wrestling match against Anthony Inoki against Strong Kobayashi before VHS. Of course, decades before the internet, right? And uh, th at the time, nobody had VCR, but all these people remember this, this, you know. All, you know, like uh, finish things, you know, in the, the match sequences in, in in their head. You know, Kobayashi did this, and Kobayashi did that, and Inoki did this, and all the, you know, the vertical suplex to backbreaker to Luthes backdrop into Inoki's big time German suplex. And everybody remember exactly how the last five minutes of the match is a whole sequence of it in their head. That was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how if you're the right age, you remember everything. And, and I, the match you've watched 40, 50 years ago, it's in your head and you can replay it in your you know, your brain archives or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you were my friend, I think you may know him, he's from Florida, Howard Ball. Yeah. And he was a photographer and things in Florida. And he's still around. I see him at Cauliflower Alley, but... He's got a phrase, he says, nothing is cooler than when you're 10 years old. Okay. And that's true. I mean, you really sort of soak up more things. Yeah, so excited. You're excited. You have maybe a little bit more awareness, a little bit more freedom, and it's just you're young, full of energy, and there's still a lot of impressions to be made. So you remember a lot of things. That maybe you wouldn't had a Yeah, sometimes age. you don't remember what you ate yesterday, but you can <laughs> you can recall wrestling match from fifty years ago. Yeah, or I mean, wrestling now is fantastic. I'm not ripping yeah. on wrestling now at all, but there's so much of it. I don't see how you can remember so much because it's like a fire hose. But there's a ton of great wrestling everywhere throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you wonder what will people remember and what is more disposable 
than other moments, but history will decide that as far as what each generation decides to remember. Oh, I'm sure if you're young and watching um, Okada against Will Ospreay match from G1 Climax final this year, actually it was a great match, but that will become this generation's memory of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we still watch today's wrestling, but I do, you know, we all remember what we watched as a kid. Yeah. Very vividly. Nothing is cooler than when you're 10 years old. (laughs) Yeah, I was so excited. And it's still in your brain, you know. You can uh, take, you know, just, uh, you know, if somebody starts talking about it, you do remember, you know, actually, I mean, the, the entire sequence of the, 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 in the last five minutes of the match or something. It was ama- amazing. Yeah. Well, let's move on to some... Uh, yes. Some, uh, some modern things. Um, in stardom, in IWGP New Japan, they unveiled yeah. the brand new IWGP Women's, Women's Championship. And it the looks... belt looked like your second, you know, model, second design of IWGP belt, men's belt, like Hashimoto model, huh? Yeah, the Hashimoto belt, which yeah. I was never a fan of. I didn't know. Uh, not that pretty, huh? No. The first belt, the, the black leather round one, you know, is Inoki's signature belt and Hulk Hogan had. That's great. And also third version, the current version, fourth version is all good looking, like a today's belt, Tanahashi belt, that uh, Okada belt, that Kenny Omega, JY, all these people have it, and then just yeah. that's how we remember today's IWGP. But this, yeah, I don't know why they designed this like, after second, you know, design of it, yeah, for women's title this year. Yeah, and speaking of unattractive belts, how about that TV title? Yeah, that. Uh, Square, square plate like your Tennessee CWA belt. That's what it looks like. It reminds me of the CWA, the short-lived. Yeah, Tennessee belt. Yeah, because it was like square, square belt with brown, light brown belt leather. Shaped like and a license plate. Like, some people have problem. The, the the plate says NewJapanWorld.com on it. So it's going to be like a multimedia title then. Yeah, it's for um, NJPW World, uh, more more for this, you know, today's internet in streaming service purpose that that represent that the whole program of it. I don't have a problem with it. I just think that no, design no, is... no, it's a new belt. Uh, the fact that it's another singles title. And uh, where if there was a hierarchy in the championship, that the, where would they put it? Right underneath IWGP singles title, or like a never open weight title, or there's like a still have uh, they retired it, but there was IWGP Intercontinental title. So it's like where would they put this TV title, or like a place right underneath IWGP World Heavyweight title, or what you know? And uh, because of this, that the situation that the uh, that the Carl Anderson currently has, uh, IWGP no, not IWGP, but the New Japan, uh, the Never Openweight Title, that sh- that will probably be decided if Carl Anderson is full time with WWE. Yeah, I mean it's yet to be seen. Yeah, what, what they're yeah. going to do with the TV title, but 
Right. It but the sounds... never open weight title was never a main title, so. I think they need to get rid of that title. I think that title's pretty pointless. Yeah, uh, just being forgotten. I think so, in my opinion. Or, or quietly forgotten, like I right. never mentioned it again. Right now's the perfect time. The perfect, yeah, I guess so. Right now's the perfect time, but as far as the TV title goes, it seems to me like it's going to be like a young guy's title. Yeah, yeah, and then the all title match should be this. I, I'm talking about New Japan World uh, TV title. All the title match should be 15 minute time limit. So right. the, the, the announcement was that, that, that the match would be fast and quick and more updated or something like that. And so, so they will do like more like a, more like a Stardom's high speed title. Right. Yeah. But for younger guys. Yeah. Yeah. They give the opportunity for younger guys to you know, challenge singles title. It seems Before like they a. go on to IWGP, you know, the, the high, the top title. Right. Plus it's an opportunity to expose that champion on more matches on more platforms to get more people associated or you know used to exposed to whomever they pick like let's let's just right Gra- graduating from young lion status and becoming more and more your like you be on tv all the right. time like that let's just yeah. say for example they put the belt on the guy that's from bellevue here Snohomish, where I live. Let's say they put the belt on Clark Connors. They're not going to, but let's just say they did. Or Yo or Show. Right. Yeah. And then it's like, then that person has got a spotlight on the website. They've got a lot more free matches that you will see that people can watch. Um, then you can really sort of expose that person as a champion get people behind them as they move up the ladder. No, it's, I think it's yeah. a great idea. Great idea. Uh, that's a, actually basically a pretty good idea. Huh. Yeah. Ugly belt. Great idea. <laughs> yeah. Square play, huh? It's weird. It's really weird. Isn't it though? But yeah. yeah, it totally looks like the old CWA title. It would look like a license plate. Because <laughs> it's square? Yeah. yeah. That yeah. thing wasn't around very long, though, but there it was. Yeah, like a Tennessee, Tennessee CWA title, like. You know, speaking of Tennessee, we've seen on television these yeah. past couple of weeks tales from the tales, territory. Oh, yeah, from territories. And we're talking, we're going to talk about AWA episode of it today. Now, maybe. Yeah, I watched it, yes. Maybe for some new people, I guess, let's tell the story. You came to the United States. Talk about that. I lived in Minnesota. You decided to be an exchange student. To, yeah. Where did you decide to go and why? Uh, they sent me to Minnesota. Right. I didn't have a choice. I wanted to go to California first. <laughs> you know? But uh, this, you know, the, the exchange program organization assigned me to, you're going to Minnesota. So I went back to my homeroom teacher and said, I'm going to AWA. We're going to where? I'm going to AWA. <laughs> my homeroom teacher didn't know what I was talking about. I was 17. So you, Crazy, huh? You came to the United States. Yeah. And you started... Back in 1979, yes. You started covering the show. In 19... 19- 
1981, when I was 19. Yeah. Yeah, you took, totally territorial you took, day. You took pictures? It, yeah, it was like right around the time, like a couple years before cable TV even. So if you lived in Minnesota, AEW was the only wrestling, the one and in, in the only wrestling. Yeah. Until you see WTVS Superstation give you Saturday Night 605 Pro Wrestling. Oh, there were another wrestling. Uh, more wrestling in all over the states at the time. That were the territories. Now, who were the first wrestlers who were sort of nice to you and gave you an interview? Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura. That surprises the heck out of me. Yeah, yeah, because you know, think about AW at the time, like you know, end of seventies into early eighties. They still had Vern Gagne, Mad Dog Vashon, The Crusher, Baron Von Raschke. These are the seniors, right? But they were the main event, main eventer of AW, and Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis were considered young punks in, in the dressing room. Oh my gosh, right? So they had more of an open mind talking to a guy like you. Yeah, yeah, and then also there's like there's a backstage and there's a dressing room. You know, you know I could stand around the hallway in the back, you know, backstage area waiting for the show to start, but the, I was never able to go to the dressing room like uh, to open the door and go into the room. There's a go, no, no, don't come here, right? But the backstage area, walking around, and Adrian said, "Come over here." He said, and it was great, you know, the, the, the 28-year-old Adrian, you know, st stopped and talking to me, just started talking to me. It was really, really nice. Bad guy, right? But uh, the bad guys are the, the friendlier guys, actually. And you and Adrian became pretty good friends. Yeah, because I liked what he did, and then he said, you know, I guess uh, he likes me, so we started talking. What's not to like? <laughs> yeah, but the Adrian Adonis is like a complete heel at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, very friendly. And Jesse Ventura was very friendly. Before he was, you know, politician or movie stars or anything like that. So I was able to witness how Jesse Ventura, uh, you know, just getting to be big stars, you know. And then he was a first, Jesse Ventura was the first one to jump. The jump ship, you know, and join WWE, WWF. Yeah. Jesse. And also, pretty soon he, he was on a Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah. Jesse was a smart guy. Jesse is a smart guy. As far as. And East West Connection, if you remember, Jesse Venture and Adrian Adonis, that uh, East West Connection. Adrian from New York City and Jesse Venture actually from Minnesota, but he was built that he's from like a Venice Beach, California or something. So East West Connection, therefore. And uh, they were like in second, third match first, but pretty soon they were put together. Uh, before Adrian came to AWA, he was working down uh, south, like Amarillo, Texas, where he became Adrian Adonis. If you remember, uh, Adrian from Portland area, he was still Keith Frank or Keith Franks, right? He did both. He was he uh, both? Keith Franks in the 70s. And then yeah. in the late 79, I think, he came in, okay. came back. His Adrian Adonis, yeah. Ah, okay. 
Because there's a lot to do with his you know, Italian background in you know, Adria in the ocean and Adonis is like a Greek, you know, myth god, right? And uh, yeah, so the name was given by Terry Funk, I believe. Terry Funk gave a lot of people their names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Adrian was in, in Amuleto, he was doing this old-fashioned take on Old Comer. I mean, Old Comer meaning uh, just fat, big, you know, beer drinker from the audience uh, you know for if you can pin adrian for five thousand dollars or something that will take on you know take challenge from any you know from anybody and he was actually college wrestler people don't know about it but he did go to college as a football jocks and, and wrestling jock and he was like a type of per- person who was living in a fraternity house i mean total college jock huh and uh he took on all comers, like your ring, you know, ringside crazy fan audience. But he was able to, you know, take them down and beat them, kind of thing. And it just it, it takes tough guy to do so, right? Didn't it go south one time? Oh, like Mr. Wrestling Timmy Woods? Story? I thought it, I thought it did one time. I thought it did, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't remember. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to remember. Even as late as 1979, they were still doing it. Take on O'Comer from that the crazy? audience. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah, when, you know, you don't know what what can happen. I right. mean, decades before MMA, but uh, they're always drunken, big body, fat, you know, tough guy, so-called, right? And they want to take on wrestlers. Was it? And, was it Terry Daniels? Was it the Terry Daniels story? Was that with Adrian Adonis? Uh, who who's that? Terry Daniels. Remember, he's with the Sergeant Slaughter and the Cobra Corps. Oh, the protege of Sergeant. Uh, I, I, I'm not so familiar. I'm with trying to remember. I'll, I'll have to look yeah. it up later. But anyway, oh, okay. Yeah, Adrian was a legit yeah. tough guy, no doubt. Okay, okay. So uh, back to our AWA story. Adrian was the very first one. They said, like, "Come over here," and, and you know, I was like, I was nineteen year old, you know, guy with with camera. You know, like I'm not even a photographer, but uh, at the time, the first thing you would do is, do, you know, to be a ringside photographer to take, you know, photos of matches, right? Right. So, uh, so I had a little Canon, and uh, yeah, I was taking photos. Way back when, yeah. Did you ever but, uh, meet Vern Gagne? Uh, Vern didn't believe me first that uh, you know, I, uh, you know, asked if I can be in the ringside. I work for you know Japanese wrestling magazine. I looks like a little kid, right? Still, uh, to him, and he didn't believe me. But I kept going to the show and you know, been, you know, went to ringside and took photo. Then following month, I brought the Japanese wrestling magazine. Look, my photos in it, and, and they started believing me. <laughs> yeah. Now you also some people some people try to get in the ringside, you know, telling people, you know, telling promoters that you're a photographer working for a magazine when they're not. Oh yeah, yeah. sure. Everybody's working yeah. in wrestling. <laughs> yeah. So I got my foot in the door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. You also wash dishes at a Japanese restaurant. Well, yeah, that's sort of the Japanese restaurant in downtown Minneapolis where Masa Saito came in a couple, three times a week to have lunch or dinner or just hang out for hours. 
And uh, he came out of this kitchen, and I uh, put my you know, stool right next to him. And can I talk to you? And just, you know, <laughs> when you're in college or being so young that you're not so afraid that uh, you know, I put my chair right next to Masa, and he says, um, "Can I talk to you?" And then we talked wrestling for hours and hours. I guess he had a lot of time then. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Then Road Warriors came back from Atlanta, and we became friends too. Yeah, so I was lucky, very lucky. I consider myself very lucky, to, you know, to have been, have been able to meet these people in person. Well, and really didn't Jumbo come into the restaurant too? Right, right. Two two big tours. You know, he beat Nick Bakwenko in Japan and became champion. And then he took the belt and, and came to not just Minnesota, but to, as a champion, he traveled all over the, you know, AW area. Yeah, back to this, you know, Tales from Territory is, you know, TV program. It's aimed for today's audience, right? Right. And uh, like in, in, you know, WWE Hall of Fame speech, they always talk about AW as small regional territory or something like that. It wasn't. You know, AWA at the time, yeah, the, the, the headquarters in Minnesota, but they, they run shows in up in, in the Manitoba, Winnipeg area, then the Wisconsin, parts of Iowa, Chicago, North and South Dakota, Nebraska to Salt Lake City, Denver, all the way to San Francisco. It's a big area, don't you think? Geographically, yes. Geographically, yeah. AWA was very big company, and I believe um, WWE's WWF's nineteen eighty four national expansion, the first round, it was almost modeled after what AWA was doing. Same crew, you know, the package of talent, AWA roster, was traveling city to city, state to state, with the same crew. Much like 1984 National Expansion of WWE, WWF package. Right. And evidently, AWA was a company that Vince stole their talent so, so much of, you know, Hulk Hogan, the Jesse Venter, the Ken Patera, Adrian Adonis, Jumping Jim Brunzel, even announced the in Auckland, Bobby Heenan. They, they just took, took the entire crew away from AWA. Yeah. And of course, Hulk Hogan was main event in AWA at the time, 82, 83, until he decided to, you know, sign with WWF and become champion with this national expansion thing. So AWA was damaged the most, you know, in all the all of the territories. Yeah, no, a lot of a lot of talent went with Vince and left Vern Gagne and yeah, of course, the Vince McMahon took all the talent from all over the place, from Paul Orndorff from Georgia, the Roddy Piper from South uh, in Portland. Uh, they took all the top talent, talent from you know, talents from existing territories, but uh, AWA was damaged the most, I believe. You know, as I'm watching the tales from the territories. Yes, yes. As I Round watched, table is great, but uh, yeah. As I uh, watched the Tennessee one. Yeah, They're it telling- was almost flat because that the story after story after story is just incidents after incident. But the, they never had any conclusion of the episode. It was just just bunch of talks, right? Well, it felt Where would it end. There was a certain, I'm just going to call it a warmth, to the Tennessee stories. Yeah. 
Like everybody there, obviously, because they all do shows together. They've all known each other for 50 years. They've all... Sure. They still do, you know, shows today, all, all of them together. So they're all mm. old friends. And there was just a certain warmth, like a high school reunion yeah. or something. Yeah, with, and, with Tennessee episode, it was both Jerry and Jeff Jarrett. Right. And, of course, Lala, Jerry Lala, and Martha South, Jimmy Hart. And Dutch and, Mantel. Yeah, Dutch Mantel, yeah. So there's no better mouthpiece than them. Right. It just felt like the AWA one was a bunch of stories, but it, if, if you didn't watch the AWA, if you were a new fan, you would have mm -hmm. thought that they were all drugged up and partying and the AWA was the biggest drug promotion in the world. And I'm not saying there weren't drugs. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm the not way saying, they portrayed. Do you understand, yeah. do you understand what I'm saying? Having, yeah, having Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel is, is a good choice of people, of course. And all Medusa DDP. They were in the last leg of AWA. It is a completely, completely different era of AWA in itself. Then Ken Patera, a little bit annoying, but it's good to have him there. Because Ken Patera is about 80 years old now, but it looks pretty good for 80. But he was there to talk about the McDonald incident, huh? Yeah. You know, Ken Patera, he, a couple of years ago, he gave a speech at Cauliflower Alley. Okay. And he got in trouble because he was supposed to go, I don't know, let's just say... 10 minutes and he yeah. went about he went about 30 maybe okay. somewhere between 25 and 30 but okay. i'm gonna tell you i thought personally the speech was hilarious he was yeah. ken patera is very funny in a very cynical critical way he is okay but he he can't be contained he can't be edited he needs to go long to be funny. And that's why the McDonald's story was so long and they couldn't get into anything else from Ken Patera. Because Ken Patera, trust me, he's hilarious, but you can't contain Ken Patera. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, after this WWF national expansion, Ken Patera was also the one who went to WWE too. Yeah. Well, and for those who don't know, around 1980 was the peak of Ken Patera's career. Yeah. And when he was the Intercontinental Champion and Missouri Champion at the same right. time. At the same time. He oh, was, yeah. He was a great heel. He looked like a million bucks. He could talk. He did all the... So ripped. He yeah. did the strongman gimmicks in his interviews. People had seen him on national television. He was a big deal, and he was great. But yeah. injuries, whatever, caught up to Ken Patera. And, you know, Ken Patera from, like, 85 after was kind of a shell of himself, to be honest. Yeah, and also he had to spend two years in jail. Right. Yeah. When he came back, he was heavier, you know, and older. Which is yeah. weird because usually people get the prison body 
because you work out so much. Ah, uh, but he was heavier though when he came back. Yeah, he was. Yeah. The injuries, I'm sure, injuries. But for the, what I thought first about this roundtable, well, I guess that they are going to do this roundtable format for the the whole season, right? Do you know what, what territory territory will be the next episode? I think it's After Florida. Tennessee and AWA? I think it's Florida. Oh, Florida, okay. Then they'll have people from Florida then. Yeah, now they're also doing Portland. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But how many territories they can do? I mean, well, the entire season can be filled, huh? So there, there were enough territories back then. Oh, of course. I mean, they'll do... What do they do? They did two uh, with... Dar- this... Uh, Tales from Territory Days, are they the same people that produce Darkseid? They are, but they're also working with Dwayne Johnson's Seven Bucks Entertainment. Oh, okay, because the producer Dwayne Johnson put put some money into the product production. One would think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because somebody has to come up with the budget. But the, what they want was this, uh, very similar to Dark Side. That uh, obviously, well, now they have like with the Dark Side of comedy or Dark Side of this and that, right? So it's it's becoming more scandal TV. Like you watch, you know, like reruns of Inside Edition uh, in the middle of the night. And yeah, they are not looking for inspiring story. They are looking for like. Very much like a tabloid mentality, mindset stories. Huh? I think it's a little more high-minded than that. I mean, I saw yeah. the dark side of comedy with Brett Butler. And they yeah. co- they cover everything, and then they do, well, here's where she is today, and things are okay. It's almost like VH1 behind the music, where... Okay, VH1, yeah, right. You okay. do have sort of a little bit of a happy ending at the end. I mean, they're never at the heights that they were, but they, they try to find some positive, whatever it is. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it has to be a I mean, good-hearted story. This is wrestling. You know, it's not just tragedies, you know. And, and I think on this AWA episode, they had spent way too much time on how crazy Mad Dog Vashan was. Yeah, they almost, did. Yeah, like almost, you know, the half, the first half of the story was how crazy Mad Dog Vashan was, was instead of talking about Mad Dog Vashan also was 1948 London Olympics person and the multi-AWA world champion multiple times. And he was the biggest rival of Vern Gagne in, in earlier and never touched upon that fact. Yeah, they never really get into, like you mentioned... The bio of wrestlers. Right. The flavor of the territory or who, yeah, who these people are. And how crazy they were I mean, on the road. They're just... It just didn't feel as warm. And maybe it's because these people, not all of them are like close friends. Doesn't mean they hate each other. I'm not implying that i'm just saying that you know maybe medusa doesn't hang out with ken patera or doesn't hang out with jim brinzel or greg Gagne, or vice versa so it's like they don't have a certain chemistry like like all the memphis guys did 
Right, it's different. It's different. And also, when Medusa, you know, was was in AWA as a rookie, the Greg Vanya, you know, Greg Gagne was one of the bosses. Right. Yeah, so it's different hierarchy, and then in different generation, you know. But they were on same, you know, table round table discussion this time. And also, I guess DDT behaved, you know, he didn't say much, you know, because he knew he was a rookie manager at the time. They sh- they showed the early, early clip of DDT being a manager and didn't exactly have the biggest role in there. So I, surprisingly, you know, the, the DDT was very quiet during this roundtable. You know, for people who didn't live through it, yeah, when the AWA was dying, Mm-hmm. And I was like a teenager then. So all these right, right. all these people on the AWA seem like a million years old. <laughs> or out yeah. of shape or just not cosmetically pleasing. And you saw Medusa and you're like, well, she's young and she's cool looking. There were very few young cool looking people on AWAT. Fancy about the time. There were very few. You know yeah. the rockers were kind of small at the time. Talented but young and rookie, yeah. But small for the eighties. You thought yeah. oh they can't go anywhere because they're too small because wrestling was the land of the giants then. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Heavyweight. You're like big guy. You're like, these guys are great, but they'll never make it in WWE. You know, they proved us wrong, and that's great. They were wrong, yeah. But I'm just saying, there were so few. It was like all old guys. Nick Bockwinkle was old. Um, God bless him, Baron Von Raschke was old. Sergeant, the Crusher, Mad Dog. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter looked very heavy at the end. There was just, it was just a really, it wasn't a good product at all. So DDP and Medusa were like, a couple of people with good gear and that looked young for the era. While AWA was still fighting WWF's national expansion and AWA, you know, like last legs, but uh, they had national TV on ESPN. Today, with TV rights, that keep the AWA alive. Probably, probably, yeah. Right. Not like, yeah, unlike TV rights, annual money, today's budget, right? You're talking 20, 30 million. Yeah, they would have survived. So, you know, but but- again, the pro- they didn't change product or the, the way they run the card or that they ran their storyline or whatever, that uh, it was still old fashioned in it. Yeah, very old fashioned. Yeah. And they didn't really touch upon Cart Hennig at all because they he was already like like a like a you know heel version young heel version of Cart Hennig was almost Mister Perfect then. Yeah. But that uh, the story didn't say anything about Cart Hennig. Yeah. What did What did you think about Medusa's stories? Did you? What are your thoughts? Uh which one? I mean, how tough she had it, and where she came from. Before she started and got paid in the oh, okay, okay. Pretty good, but uh, didn't say her going to Vern's office and uh, Vern made her do, you know, 200 squats right in front of him, you know, and all that. She kind of skipped that one. 
Oh, that's too bad. That... Yeah, living in yeah living out of her car is a famous story, you know. That'd yeah. be a good. Thank you, sir. Kept that in. I'll bet you. That'd be a great story. Two hundred Hindu squats is a great story. Yeah, yeah, because it's an old-fashioned way to see, you know, what you got and uh, what what you made out of. You know, do the hundred squats, two hundred squats, right now, right here, and then start doing the squats in our office space. You know. <laughs> yeah, but she she did that. Of course she did. What do you think about Ken Patera's McDonald's story? Well, I don't believe there was this 18-year-old young guy throwing the rock. I think it was Ken, you know, did that. But the story of when the police force and the whole entire squad or something came to their motel and uh, maced them, and it's been written and it's been documented. So the, I think that the bra and hotel room and hallway was pretty accurate. I don't know if they stuck up all the police officers in the hallway, though, but uh, yeah. But I mean, let's talk about Masa Saito was was a basically you're going to consider him your father in wrestling and he was also yeah. he was legit yeah olympic wrestler college graduate and they wanted to come to america and, and, and become american and he did that for 20 years he lived in america yeah and yeah, but eventually he decided to come, you know, come back to Japan at 87 and had a huge program against Antonio Inoki. And he did not want to baby, you know, become babyface in Japan that uh, if he was heel that he can be the opponent of Antonio Inoki in the main event. He chose to be the heel, you know, like a big shot heel. Some people choose because they were friends, Inoki and Masa, they were friends. But in the ring, Masa decided that uh, he'll be the heel, therefore he'll be the main man opponent of Antonio Inoki, which he did and had a major program in 80, 88. And uh, eventually he became uh, the, the booker with, with New Japan and he decided to stay here, you know, stay in Japan. Work against Inoki because that's where the money is. And also that uh, if he was the tag team partner in the babyface side, that uh, you would never be, the, you know, like uh, you would be the third guy or fourth guy from top, huh? Or the setup guy for feuds. You get beat. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, right. so Masa was good heel and uh, Inoki and Masa complimented very, you know, very much each other in the ring. Yeah. And they had that... Uh... Very and, famous and island. The jungle match. fight at the end. Jungle fight, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to finish their program. Yeah, the jungle fight, first ever jungle fight. And uh, the Gandhi, you know, Gandhi Vijima that, uh, that actually exists in a small island that there were old samurai Miyamoto Musashi actually had this, you know, sword fight at the historical site. They set up the ring and did that. And uh, it was very interesting. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised nobody has tried to nobody's not tried to do another jungle fight i would uh, they did a couple times like a hiroshi hase against tiger jeet singh and uh, yeah but uh, not as well published i'm sorry I, I, I meant in the united states Oh, in the States, yeah. But there's like a no people no arena match you know jerry lala against terry funk that's similar yeah, yeah. a lot of people have tried to redo that one but i guess I'm surprised, like somebody like Jericho hasn't tried to redo it or something. Oh, uh, probably, probably playing with the idea, though. Yeah, 
Because it's a whole, just entirely different setup that you have to actually f- film the movie or something, you know. So, yeah. getting back to Masa Saito, you yeah, and uh, this tale of tales from Territory Days episode, yes. You saw him. You went to visit him in prison. Yeah, yeah, twice, summer and winter. Yeah. No, it was a correctional uh, correctional facility instead of big jail. There was no big fence or big wall around it. Of course, it's uh, in the middle of nowhere in the Wisconsin woods that the, you don't want to escape, and it's like you, you walk days to find any civilization. You know what I'm saying? You know that's interesting. You know when you think of going to prison, yeah, you think that it's going to be walls and barbed wire and guns you don't think of like a minimum. it wasn't it wasn't like that at all it was like a wow it looks like a park with with fence but not the big tall wall like you, you know you can't climb or there's no electricity or no big cameras or anything like that and it wasn't even wearing jail clothing clothing so you I mean, know he had this yeah regular shirt and jeans you know denim i mean not a that the jail, you know, clothing like this orange outfit, you know, the jumpsuit outfit, like you would imagine. He didn't have any of that. He wasn't dressed like nails. No, no, not like that at all. No, he had regular clothing, and they had classes. They had this schedules, you know. They do the other uh, workout, and they have just daily programming, like you, you know, they do the yard work or you know the plant the vegetables and uh, and whatnot yeah so it was a correctional camp yeah it's like a minimum security thing but you cannot escape from that because you'll be walking on the woods for days until you find anybody or any town yeah so as far as prisons go it wasn't bad no it wasn't bad and he was a model you know I don't want to say prisoner, but uh, he was like a model inmate. That uh, and also they put him in the kitchen role so he can eat well. I mean, you gotta be eating more than a regular Joe, normal human being, right? Because the master works out and he wants to, he needs to eat more than the regular people. He's a big guy. Yeah, so they put him in the kitchen, so he said you know, he could eat any time. <laughs> That's pretty good. But when I went to visit, I uh, boiled, uh, uh, boiled noodles and uh, you know, made steamed rice and brought it, you know, brought it over to his, and you know, we ate in there, Japanese food. That's very nice of you. Oh, but then also I ran, you know, wrote a big, you know, story for the magazine. I also took photos while he, you know, when he was in there, and I just wanted to show this is his life now, and uh, he was in good shape and good, you know, good spirit. That uh, when he gets out, he's gonna make big comeback, which he did. Yeah, it's like almost almost like a eighteen months rehab, <laughs> something like that. Right, like almost like an excursion for an old guy. Yeah, and no, not one beer, right? Nothing. I mean, just he was in great shape. Yeah. So that really helped and extended his career five, ten years. Yeah. And I just came find... back to, yeah, came back to New Japan environment that gets really physically hard, right? That uh, he was still in main event when he was in mid-50s. 
Yeah. Well, and also, obviously there were no hard feelings because, at least for a brief period of time, yeah. at that New Japan show, at that big show, they uh, put the AWA title on Masa Saito briefly. In the- yeah, uh, Tokyo Dome. Yeah, yeah, he beat Larry's disc for AWA world title when he was 48 or something. Right. Then he brought the belt back to drop the belt back to Larry Zabisco at the St. Paul Civic Center. And ironically, it was the very last show AWA ran. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, Vern didn't have to do that. You know, he could still hold a grudge, I guess, against Masa Saito. And I guess it says something. Uh... Yeah, I saw photos that you know people like Larry Zabisco, Nick Bakunko, all visiting him at that correctional facility. Yeah, they came and visit. Did they Not vi- burn, but uh, yeah, most wrestlers. Bakunko and Maso were really, really good friends too. Was Patera at a different facility? Do you know? Right, right, completely different facility. Like more and high security. And also, they didn't even write each other that much because, I don't know how to put it, but Kenny's uh, lawyer, maybe not him, but they, um, you know, they argued that it was Masa who started, basically. It wasn't. Oh, they tried to pin it on him. Blame on him a little bit. But maybe that was lawyer's choice. So they had separate, uh, you know, court case and hearing, and they were put in different facility. And they were friends, but they weren't writing letters to each other. It was decades before the internet and emails, okay? So people still wrote letters. Sure. And, and while you're in jail, you write lots of letters. You know, I wrote him letters, and he wrote back too, you know. And... uh Kenny, yeah, they, it's like eventually they had almost like a falling out, you know. They didn't really, you know, keep in touch after that. That's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Because because Ken Patera obviously started that thing, right? And uh, and Masa was completely victim of the circumstances. And the police in Wisconsin, Waukesha, Wisconsin, came to the hotel room. That night, Masa and Ken Patero were rooming together. And Masa, you know, Masa answered the door. They maced him. And then you know the rest of the story. You know, And Masa was not involved in McDonald's incident. It was the hotel hallway bra that he was in. But then again, you don't lay hands on police officer. Not, not good, right? And uh, yeah, they wanted to... Uh, sentenced them, yeah, which they did. And uh, there's other wrestlers in in the States at the time, like Hiro Matsuda and Greg Kabuki, wrote Masa letters, leave America and don't serve time, you know. But uh, he wanted to stay in, you know, Masa wanted to stay in America and he already had a green card, so he wanted to go through, you know, court case as an American, you know, like not quite citizen, but uh, it took that verdict in America and uh, even after the you know the time he's, he he was serving he was going to stay in America and he was married to an American female you know woman at the time yeah so those were I mean it's a real details yes yeah, it's interesting how Ken Patera I guess was broken down and really his comeback 
pretty much fell flat. But Masa Saito yeah. was able to go on to a pretty big Masa run. Masa had another run, a yeah. big run. It was New Japan, yeah. It's a lot to do with you know his like willingness and you know positive attitude. That uh, it's like this is like eighteen months rehab, and uh, that, oh, you know he he he'd be a great shape when he gets out, which he did. And then he's you know he he had his first match back in dying days of AWA. Then pretty soon he was invited as a main opponent of Inoki main you know Inoki Live. You know that eighty seven was the year that Inoki ran a lot of big shows. And the Masa was his single match opponent. Yeah. So you never know, you know, like, what's going to happen after a bad thing, huh? I guess it really is a lesson about attitude. Yeah, he was in great shape. And uh, he came back like a fresh person. And then he was in, yeah, like a whole new attitude about you know, business is going he wanted to go back to ring and have great you know wrestling career and great matches and have great time and he you know pretty much made a lot of money after that you know yeah so uh, he had second chance and he took advantage of it I guess yeah that's a good though yeah so he he handled it very well yeah I'm talking about Masa yeah he, he, right. yeah, he has handled the situation real well were you surprised to see the facility that he was in? Uh, I was told that it's not really like a big, big you know, state prison or anything like that. It's a correctional camp, they call it. And uh, uh, we, you know, Master's wife at the time, and I drove like five hours from Minneapolis. I mean, drove through Wisconsin woods, middle of nowhere, nothing but, you know, highway. We got there. And, uh, yeah, it was... Like they didn't search me or anything. It's like, a, you know, I was able to get, get in a you know, visiting room and we sat and usually, what, for 20 minutes or so. They, they let me stay like hours, you know, all afternoon, basically. Yeah. yeah we had a lot of ca you know, catching up to do. And uh, I told what was happening in Japanese res you know, wrestling business and uh, how other people were talking about him and uh, how... Japanese fans or the, the whole Japanese wrestling community waiting for him to get out and welcome him back kind of thing. How long were you at the AWA in Minnesota? I was? I was never in the AWA. Well, you know, yeah. How long were you in Minnesota? Yeah, so all, the, all, the, all of six years. You know, my you know, senior in high school and five years in college. All, all, all total of six years. And five years of it, I was already a young punk wrestling journalist in America. And yeah, you were sending pictures and stories. Yeah, yeah. Was it weekly pro wrestling you sent them to? Uh, it became weekly in summer of 83. When I started, it was still monthly pro wrestling and deluxe pro wrestling, the two monthly magazine. In summer of 1983, it became weekly magazine. So I was able to have lots of new, I mean, like a more ass assignment. Um, Hulk Hogan living in Minneapolis at the time. I went to his house and take photos. And he was already li living with then fiance Linda. 
Uh, later on, they married and had two kids and all these things. Then got divorced. But the, Linda and Hulk Hogan was already living in Minnesota together and went to his house. I went to Nick Bachman's house uh, to do the photos. I went to Jesse Ventura's gym to do the photos. Um, got together with all the warriors and went to Jim Brunzel's uh, at the gym. And I could do a lot of outside stories, more so than Minneapolis Auditorium and St. Paul Civic Center. One thing I didn't know yeah? from Tales of the Territories, I didn't know that Jim Brunzel had the nickname The Doctor. And that oh, I did not know that he was clean, you know, just, you know, more total, uh, the, the college jock, AWA, you know, Varangania camp graduate kind of clean baby face. Huh? I did not know about that either. Yeah, he was almost like the Donny Osmond of wrestling. <laughs> yeah, the, the clean guy. Yeah, yeah and smiling fi- baby face. And to find out that he's far, far from it, I was like, oh wow. Oh, I did not know that I, at all. Yeah, know. yeah. I was, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I know that all wrestlers are not clean. I, I suspected <laughs> that he was somewhat not clean. I just didn't know. That he had the nickname. Yeah, the Jim Brunzel was the total babyface, clean guy. Yeah. Apparently, he should have been known as Dealing Jim Brunzel. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. No, he didn't come off like that at all at the time either. I went to his sample, um, not the sample, but yes, sample suburb. He was running Jumping Jim Brunzel's gym, you know, and then. Uh, yeah, it's just total clean, athletic, you know, local hero type of guy, you know, in the White Bear Lake, Minnesota, yeah. Yeah, it'd be like, I don't know, it's just, it's very, it was very shocking. But then again, there's always was like a prescription medicines, you know, that, the, you know, local doctor that, that happened to be wrestling fan, they'll write, pres- you know, prescription, pres- prescription for you. I can't talk. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that I thought that Jim Brazell was probably completely clean. I didn't think that, but... No, that surprised me too. I didn't think that he was But such a, not as bad as later on in the 90s, like everybody was taking this muscle relaxer, Soma, right. as your choice of drugs, you know. I didn't know. But, but they were talking, on this episode, they were talking about things like quaaludes and stuff like that. <laughs> like in the, the 70s drugs. Yeah, yes, yeah. Every generation has got its, it's got Still, its drugs. Mad Dog Michelle's story was all on that crazy stuff and never touched upon his legitimate, you know, re- amateur Olympic wrestling background and how good good of a wrestler and how influential he was in, the, you know, heyday of AWA. Not just crazy story like opening up a door on, on a commuter airplane. I mean, yeah. I thought the Medusa story of Sherry throwing milkshakes was kind of funny from Dairy Queen yeah that was kind of funny but there was nothing in the no, end no message in it there was no warm happy fuzzy feel good there was nothing very positive or warm I felt about the AWA version and also I'm sure that the that the roundtable discussion, they taped hours and hours yeah. of you know footage, and those were the episodes the editors and producers picked up. Right. There, there must be other episode that, that they edited off that they, they should have left it in, you know? 
And uh, those were apparently the episode that the the this TV producers and directors wanted to you know keep instead of editing off. Right. I think it has to do with are the stories crazy, or yeah. are the people involved I don't famous? Chain gang story was necessary. Yeah, that was so old, and. And also, they weren't even AWA talent. Is most of the time they were Chain like a WWE. They're like Chicago. Yeah, Dick, Dick, Dick the Bruisers, yeah. Indianapolis guys. Yeah, right. That's what I felt too. Yeah, it wasn't necessary. But way at the end of this whole episode, that they start talking about the Vince McMahon's negotiation. I don't negotiate in the, the, the expand, national expansion or wanting wanting to buy out AWA, and then Vern told him that he had uh, other partners around this, you know, territories and other cities and different promoters. But that story has been written so many times, including if you remember Sex and Lies and Headlock book. Right, Mike Mooneyham. Yeah, that book really covered that, you know, Vince McMahon's initial national expansion, you know, plans, and, and it's been told so many times. So I'm sure that the Greg Gagne had to talk about it and uh, rest up until 1983 that none of the uh, wrestling promoters had written contracts. It was all on handshake deal. And uh, that's what Vince McMahon used, that none of these top talent in the existing territories had written contracts signed. Therefore, they can actually sign away anybody with their lawyer's contract. That's true, because... All the way till the, the 1999 or 2000, Giant Baba, as an old, old-fashioned promoter, right? Believe it or not, uh, Stan Hansen never signed con- written contract to his Old Japan Pro Wrestling. It was handshake with Giant Baba, but it, each side honored their you know, words. And Stan Hansen worked Old Japan, Giant Baba's Old Japan for 20 years straight with no contract. Um, amazing, right? That is amazing. Yeah. But then again, Baba always paid what he said he was going to pay and just always always paid. You know, this is a traditionally Japanese you know, promoter's way that the, the very last day, you know, last day of the, the, the tour, that the wrestlers, you know, individually go into Baba's small office in the arena, shut the door and get paid and then get the return dates. Okay, you're coming back to States. And then uh, pretty soon that the, it's it's way before electric, you know, air, you know, the ticket though, that the pretty soon travel agent will be sending you your return, you know, plane ticket via Federal Express or something, and you'll get the ticket and all the hotels and everything's already paid you know, paid for, and Stan Hansen returns next tour. So that was how it was handled. And Vern Gagne the same way, that the just office will give wrestlers the schedule, they show up, and they get paid. So I don't, yeah, it was, uh, Greg Gagne was saying, you know, telling the truth that how uh, Kogan, as big as he was, he was not a, a, under co- signed contract. Yeah. Well, not only that, um, but he also doesn't mention is after Hulk Hogan left. Yeah. They misadvertised. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Knowing well ahead of time that uh, Hulk Hogan wouldn't be there at the St. Paul Civic Center at the Christmas night, that they kept, yeah, because I was there, they kept advertising it and 
never stopped advertising that the Hulkong will be there. And for as a replacement, Hulkong, I mean, the due to uh, traveling, you know, so something that uh, he cannot make to to the building, and they replaced Hal Hogan with Van Bon Raschke at the, you know the main event. They were furious. Yeah, that uh, not the best replacement. Nothing against. Oh yeah, and then also that that's like a, what a way to do business because you knew Hulk Hogan wasn't going to be there, but they went ahead and, and kept advertising. People bought tickets. You know what I'm saying? Not yeah. very honest. Nothing more with yeah. Baron von Raschke, but he was always there. That's yeah. not. That's not. Whenever you replace somebody, the rule is that's somebody star, special. Huh? Yeah, big star. Somebody yeah. new. And Baron von yeah, Raschke. That was Jesse Venture when Jesse Venture, you know, basically quit. They brought in Adrian Adonis for one night, and he wasn't even Adrian was at the time wasn't even with AWA anymore. But they brought in Adrian Adonis for replacement for one night. Yeah, so they were doing that for you know like at the time. But for Hulk Hogan's case, yes, they AWA knew way ahead of time that he wasn't going to be there. But Vern Gagne and AWA decided to keep you know advertising that you know to. Put the heat on him, though. You know what I'm saying? So, do you have a favorite AWA memory from your time in Minnesota? There are so many. There's so many. 19 year old me doing ringside shot, Vern Gagne against Nick Bachwinkle for the first, you know, my first debut, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was mesmerized and uh, I wasn't even, you know, the photographing is I was watching these, you know, this wrestling match, Ferngania against Nick Bakunikov from three feet from me, right? So, yeah, that was like, a, oh, wow, I'm watching wrestling this close, you know? Uh, you know, like when you're a kid, you'll never have ringside ticket, right? Right. Yeah, like a nosebleed, you know? But the, all of a sudden, I was in ringside and my my elbows on apron, you know, supposedly taking pictures. I decided to watch this match. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with that. I yeah, remember yeah. I had one front row ticket. One. Yeah? Not two. One front row ticket to Billy Jack versus Ric Flair in a high school, oh. in a high oh, school okay. gymnasium. That's a, big, that's a big match in Portland. Okay, not only that, but I was right by the timekeeper's table. So okay. the whole match, I'm staring at the NWA world title, the, the 10 pounds of gold. Okay, you could almost reach out and touch that belt. Yeah, it was cool <laughs> to see. I'm just like, you know, yeah. Ric Flair's in the ring. Billy Jack was hot the year I saw this match. But there's the 10 pounds of gold. Like you, I was just staring at the belt. Oh, God, and you want to almost, you know, reach out and touch the belt. You yeah, know? you want to grab it and take it away. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have got oh, very far. Similar thing, then, then shortly after that, every time I stand up and, you know, take photos of some high spot or something, I did not realize I'll get yelled at from the ringside audience. Sit down, sit down, you know. Yeah. You could just ignore that like some ringside photographers I know. Oh, but I got the thing thrown at, you know. They threw things at you? 
Well, yeah, because you know, I mean, well, man, people are throwing things into the ring because some heels did bad thing, but uh, I was right in the ringside, so there's some cold drinks or something, or beer or a cup or something hit me in the back. You should have been on Tales from the Territories. No, not that. Yep, but uh, he should have been on the AWA. It was a really scary experience, and I never even liked you know cameras that much, and I wanted to be a writer, so uh. Uh, eventually I became one. And here we are. <laughs> Decades later. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, uh, but our passion is still here, just the same. You know, Absolutely. still watching today's wrestling. Hey, real quick. Hey, real quick. Before we wrap up, speaking of today's yeah. wrestling, Jungle Kiona um, yes. just did an appearance yes. on Dark. As a freelancer. Yeah, she's in the United States. She wrestled yeah. Rio. On AEW Dark. AEW Dark, yes, yes. I hear it's a great match. Yeah, I haven't watched it, but I saw the photo on, on Twitter's, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I hear it's a great match. You know, I think it was a smart move for her to... to leave? Yeah. Stardom? Yeah. But also, she had to leave because she was best friend of Hana. Hana Kimura. Yeah, Hanakimura, yeah. So uh, it's like she couldn't be in there. And in that environment, that she, I'm pretty sure that she had a lot of thinking to do. And it's like that was time for her to, you know. She took, like, you know, a year off from wrestling, remember? Right. She was rehabbing her knees. Yeah, of course. You know, she had a knee surgery and everything. But uh, that was the right time for her to leave the environment entirely and think about things about a year. Then she decided to come back to wrestling. So I think he, she has bigger determination than she had a year ago. Yeah, you know, she got a regular job, you were saying, but now she's back. Yeah, regular job, yes. Uh, the office job. Yeah, she lost some weight. She's not quite as, she's a little thinner than she was. Yeah. And, but no, she looks great. As a matter of fact, she's going to be in Portland, Oregon on yeah. next weekend. And I'm like, it's like 90 miles. It's like a three, three hour drive. I'm like, do I go? Go there. Go do there. I, do I go? Do I not go? It's like, love Jungle Kiona. I think I do want to go, but I'm not sure. I'm and sure. also, she's a different person now, and different wrestler. You know, you know, just uh, more matured, and she knows what she's doing, and, what, and she knows what she wants, and she's on her own. And uh, that her real story begins now. You could be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to, to seeing her, the most, you know, the, the, the latest match of hers. You know, I'm sure she works differently and she handles herself you know, differently. And her presence is a little bit different from two years ago. Yeah. Well, we'll see on uh, AEW on YouTube coming up this week. We'll check it out. Jungle, Jungle Kiona Rio, yeah, for sure. All right, man. Well, let's uh, wrap things up. How can people okay. get in touch with you? Okay, on Twitter at Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter, or just Fumi Saito on Facebook. Please message me first. You can follow me at Jim Valley on Twitter. Also, I'm on TikTok. I haven't done any wrestling content. But I am on TikTok, Jim Valley, F-K-O-R. You can follow me there. So until next time. So long from Tokyo. <laughs>